Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. One ingredient of a good life, I think, once again comes out of Socrates, but you can also find it to some degree in the Buddha. It's, it's that a, a good life requires one to examine it, to, it requires one to examine what a good life is. So a, a, to live a good life is to, in an ongoing way, in an open-minded way, continue to examine the nature of your life. Now that might sound a little bit redundant, but something happens when you continue to do it as a daily practice. It, it, your life becomes fuller, it becomes richer, becomes more textured, I think it becomes much more vital so that's at least one component of, of a good life. And that's what I found each each and every day, as as one as one person put it, each and every day a, 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 a philosophical exercise. So each day, you're exercising thinking about the kind of life you're living, with the, with the idea of it of it's it's it, with the idea of it's becoming more more coherent, more intact, more enfleshed, as as you continue to do that. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Andrew, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Kay, who told me that you have effectively been the equivalent of a chief philosophy officer for many startups in uh, Silicon Valley. And uh, to even have a job title like that, I thought, okay, this is somebody who has a fascinating story. But before we get there, um, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact has that ended up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Great question. I think I was most certainly an oddball in high school. I was a part of the jocks, but wasn't quite a jock myself. I was also part of the the nerdy or more academic types, but wasn't really quite a a good member of that group either. Mm -hmm. And so I think that even before high school, my, my weirdness or oddness 
uh, was a part of my life story. And so even well after high school and on into college and after graduate school, I just became a bit odder and odder or weirder and weirder or stranger and stranger. Mm -hmm. And what impact has that had on the choices that you've made with your career? Well, what that's meant, I think, is that, well, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a number of philosophers who've talked about uh, what philosophy is really like, how, what its starting point is. And, and um, from Diogenes a cynic all the way to a, a 20th century German philosopher named Joseph Pieper, the idea is that philosophy starts when um, you begin to think that the things that are self-evident are brought into question. So the things that people take to be as givens, you begin to wonder about. Mm-hmm. And that has been more and more the case for me. Uh, after I left graduate school, as I'm sure we'll get into more, I moved to New York City. And it, it wasn't sure how to live a philosophical life, but I knew it was, it was going to be something that was uh, at a remove from the institutions that I belonged to. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up starting a philosophy practice and asking these strange and interesting and wonderful questions with the people originally in New York City and then and then around the world. Mm-hmm. So that sense of that sense of weirdness, so that sense that the world is a strange and interesting and mysterious place began well before high school, and 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 I carried with me well after high school. Mm-hmm. So these questions um one you know what what led you to to asking these questions um and let, let's talk about what those questions specifically are because i think that's really where this gets interesting um specifically like you know what are we what is self-evident that we don't question at all well there's so many things uh, so one one of the big ones is who am i mm-hmm. and we, we we ordinarily stop the inquiry if we start the inquiry we end up stopping it too 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 quickly for instance if i I'm simply a member of this family, or I'm simply someone who comes from this country, or I'm simply someone who is married to so-and-so, or I'm simply, more recently, someone who has a certain kind of job or a certain kind of career. I am I am that. So that's one question. You begin to ask it more and more deeply, and it becomes more and more curious. Mm-hmm. But there are other sorts of questions that I think are even are even easier to grasp a hold of. One that I've been thinking a lot about is the nature of work today. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have taken it as a given today that, uh, as I was reading just yesterday, someone was writing a piece and said, well, given that it's the case that we're going to work most of our waking hours, and given that it's the case that's going to occupy a central role in our lives, now what? How do we make it more fulfilling? And I thought, hang on a second. (laughs) That doesn't have to be so. It doesn't have to be true that we live in what one scholar, Sebastian de Grassi, calls a work society. Mm-hmm. We don't have it. It doesn't have to be true that most of your attention is focused on work. It doesn't have to be true that most of your hours of each day are work-related. It doesn't have to be true that your thoughts begin with the idea of being productive and with the question about whether you have been productive. These are all questions that are very alive and well today, particularly as we enter into a period when AI may change the face of work. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely want to spend quite a bit of time talking about uh, sort of the changing face of work, but I want to go back to this question of, of who am I? And one of the things that I've been really wondering about is when do we draw the line uh, or where do we find this sort of line between self-reflection and self-obsession? Because I think that, you know, when I have a tendency to self-reflect, it goes from self-reflection into endless rumination. 
uh, of things that could have been done differently or how things might have done, you know, turned out differently if I'd done this, that or that differently. And I'm curious, you know, what your sort of workaround philosophy shows about this. Well, I think there are different ways described. The one described is quite commonplace. It's more of a sense of churning that I, I, I get a question and I start to churn about with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, there are other ways, for example, I, when one philosophizes, one begins to find that one asks a question, such as who am I, and then provides a set of answers, and then investigates some of those answers to see which is the, the, the most likely to be true, and then continues in a direction in which by the end of a philosophical inquiry, you have, you have like, you might call it a provisional answer. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I think when we think about philosophy today, when we think about thinking about ourselves, we often think about um, what you just described, overanalysis, overthinking, uh, getting caught up or wrapped up in ourselves. And I would submit simply that there is another way of thinking that's much more uh, progressive in a way. They actually yield something. It yields something to the process itself. Mm-hmm. So how do we shift to that progressive way of thinking? Well, it's going to require it's going to require that we we uh, we learn systematic forms of investigation. So when uh, an easier way of putting it is that it happens through dialogue. So we go back to Socrates. Socrates was really quite a marvelous figure, and it, we we he saw that if I I can get out of my own thinking, you might say I can get. I can get away from being wrapped up in myself if I dialogue with some, someone else. And if we follow a certain kind of format, and for him, the format involved one person playing the role of the questioner and the other person playing the role of the answer. Mm-hmm. And the assumption was that if the questioner could could ask interesting questions as you're doing today, and the, it would solicit from the answer some kind of answer that they can then be investigated further. And they can see whether through a process of dialogue they could come to some kind of mutual understanding. Uh-huh. That's that, that's one way in which I'm not caught up in a lone room by myself, churning about with questions that don't go anywhere. Right. Because I've, I've, I've found someone else that I can bounce my ideas off of. I found someone else who's going to confirm or disconfirm, who's going to bring uh, acceptance or maybe even an interesting doubting question to uh-huh. what I've said. Sure. I mean, it seems to me that 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 often, you know, comes in the role of like coaches, therapists, mentors, because they're able to give you a a perspective that maybe you hadn't considered in the process of of trying to find an answer. One that, you know, often, you know, like often our own answers seem disempowering more than empowering. That's true. I think that there are. And what's interesting about today is that you can you can look at coaches, therapists, um, mentors of various sorts and now of course philosophers all of them are i think interested in the the process of how someone comes to understand himself or herself by means of some kind of dialogical situation and then that's going to vary considerably about how they approach the matter Mm -hmm. so Tell me how you get from this sort of idea of, you know, being a philosopher to turning this into an actual job um, where you're consulting with with Silicon Valley executives. And, and also, um, you know, what what role has this played in the lives of, of people like that? Like we, we might not even imagine. Well, it, it, the, the, it, it begins with 
uh, a crisis of sorts. It begins with a moment of despair. Uh-huh. It's the the winter of 2009, and I've just finished a dissertation about the nature of a good life, a good human life in the modern world, and I'm becoming increasingly disenchanted with the academic life that I've been trained to be a part of. So I'm sitting there, it's a very cold winter in Wisconsin, and I look out of my window, and I see that there is a bird feeder, and the bird feeder is covered with layers upon layers of ice. It happened to be an extraordinary cold winter that year, and I'm just looking at it. I'm, I'm spending countless hours looking at this unwavering, still, very cold, very distant bird feeder. And I don't really know what to say at this point, uh, because this is what T.S. Eliot would call objective correlative. I, can't, I don't have the words to say, I'm in despair, and this is a manifestation of that despair. But suffice to say, I realize that I don't really know what I'm doing in my life and that the way I've led it so far has been largely unreflective. Um, It's that moment that I begin to start questioning my life at a deeper level, not just questioning things that I've read, not just arguing about the things that I've thought about, but actually introspecting, thinking about my own life. Um, That led me to have an experience of of reading someone who who really did change my life, and that's the French philosopher Pierre He argues that philosophy is a way of life. It's not actually a particular kind of academic pursuit. And so much of what he ends up writing about ends up trying to show us a, a path, a way of thinking about philosophy that I think is very amenable to the lives we lead today. Mm. So I had the despair and then I had the meeting or the, the, the reading someone, reading a kind of philosophical guide. And those moments together led me to think that not only should I leave the academic life, it's, it's not for me, but I should also go somewhere else and think about how I could begin to make this life possible. Mm-hmm. So there it becomes more of an entrepreneur story, really by necessity rather than by choice. I moved to New York City. I do a lot of gig work over the next couple of years, mainly having to do with teaching people this and that, all sorts of things, while I'm trying to think about how to lead a philosophical life, a life devoted to the loving pursuit of wisdom. And it just so happens that someone points me to uh, to philosophical counseling, and it's a very short training, and I think, why not? Instead of do it on a lark, I end up doing it and thinking, well, this maybe this is for me. Mm-hmm. So I ended up doing the things that most of your listeners are probably familiar with. I, I, I started a website. I, but in addition to having a website and blogging, I, I was starting to think about all the questions that I think people often take for granted. Uh, what am I doing? How am I doing it? With whom? What is the name of the person I, I would be working with? Are we working? How, uh, how do we get on? What kind, of, uh, what kind of business model would this be? Uh, would it be a standard business model? Or would it be some kind of alternative business model and these are all kind of questions up in the air mm. but thankfully as a, as as this was occurring this is not long after the economic collapse of 2008-2009 so this is about 2011 and at that time what ended up being very interesting was that people started actually asking larger questions it wasn't just i lost my house or i'm in debt or i lost my job it was it, it went beyond that it seemed people were really searching at that point I think have been since. So my, my launching the philosophy practice, I think, largely coincided with 
moments of loss that people have been experiencing and the sense that they didn't really quite know how to live their lives. Mm-hmm. So from there, I ended up having, uh, I ended up experimenting a lot. I would often have conversations with people in Central Park and Prospect Park. You know, we would just walk and inquire together. Or we would go somewhere, inquire together. I would meet that person's house and we would have philosophical conversations. And so it ends up developing in a very organic way, uh, very improvisationally, very, uh, very much going by my wits and seeing what happens when I do something. And I think that's the standard entrepreneurial piece. Mm-hmm. Um, two things uh, I come from this. You know, what does your dissertation teach you about the nature of a good life? Like, what does that actually mean? Um, what have you, how have you seen that applied in your own life? Um, and looking at this idea of despair, um, why is it that you know people, certain people get consumed by it, and others sort of are informed by it and learn from it and grow from it? Well, this is a great, that's, that's a great question. So let me start with the good life part, and then I'll go on to the despair. Uh, one ingredient of a good life, I think, once again comes out of Socrates, but you can also find it to some degree in the Buddha. It's it's that a, a good life requires one to examine it. To, it requires one to examine what a good life is. So a, a, to live a good life is to, in an ongoing way, in an open-minded way, continue to examine the nature of your life. Now, that might sound a little bit redundant, but something happens when you continue to do it as a daily practice. It, it, your life becomes fuller, it becomes richer, it becomes more textured, I think it becomes much more vital. So that's at least one component of, of a good life, and that's what I found each, each and every day, as, as, one, as one person put it, each and every day a, 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 a philosophical exercise. So each day you're exercising thinking about the kind of life you're living, yeah. with the with the idea of it, of it's it's it, with the idea of it's becoming more more coherent, more intact, more enfleshed, as as you continue to do that. That's not the that's not all there is to say about the good life. But I think your second question is really interesting to me. Why is it the case that some people fall into despair and other people uh, lift themselves out of it? I don't know that we have a good answer to that, actually. I think it's actually quite a mystery. But what I would say, as, as a partial answer, is that you find in, in, there's a wonderful song by Peggy Lee. I just heard it recently. It's called Is That All There Is? She records the song in 1969. And she, she talks in the song about the loss of a house. Her family's house burns down. She asks, is that all there is? And she goes to the circus and there's a woman in pink tights, and she thinks, is that all there is? And then she comes to love someone, a young boy, and the boy goes away, and she says, is that all there is? And unfortunately, in the song, she, she ends up uh, falling into booze, so she goes in for hedonism. But that question, that question is, is, is the one that can, can very much drive some people to continue to investigate why they're here. I think also, relatedly, a book of Job, which if, if your listeners haven't, haven't uh, read it, they really should. It's wonderful. It's, it's tragic, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful. It's about a man who loses everything, everything he cared about. And he even, he even has to grapple with his faith in, in the divine, the holy. But it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, having, it's because he lost everything 
that he's able to actually go on a journey. So the idea is that his suffering ends up being the, the force that brings him into conversation with why he's alive, why he exists. Mm-hmm. I don't, so I don't, in answer to your question, I don't know why some people get caught in, in despair and, 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 and wallow in it. And why some other people are able to take that despair as a, as a force that leads them on some kind of journey. I think that remains a mystery, mm-hmm. but it's certainly a fascinating one. Well, you think the the natural sort of segue from that takes me to that question of, of, of happiness and, and, you know, what does it mean to be happy? And um, why is it that despite everything that we know um, from, you know, social science and happiness research of this notion that we think that all these things that um, we get next, like the next relationship, the next promotion, the next, you know, thing, like when I have this, like, why are we so caught up, even though we know it, I think intellectually of the, of the that, you know, the, if then happiness model is fatally flawed, we still kind of think that, okay, if, and when this happens, then I'll be happy. Like it's still there, you know, like I know there are certain things in my life where I find that to be true. And what's funny is in those moments that I get to the, get those things, I'm like, wow, this, there's something else now. So there, it depends on the view we want to espouse here, and yeah. we can certainly investigate it further. But given that I have a, a, a both a Socratic background and a Zen Buddhist background, I'll turn to the Zen Buddhist part. The, the, the Zen Buddhist would say, well, that's because that's the operation of the ego, which we could examine. Mm-hmm. And, and the ego is, has, is, 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 is born of lack. It's born of not, it's born of an insufficiency. Um, we'd have to look inside ourselves to see that on this view. We look inside ourselves, perhaps, and see, wow, there is something that's lacking. And out of that lack comes a desire, comes a craving for what it doesn't have. And, and, and so when it tries to grab a hold of some object, whatever it may be, whether it's uh, a beloved or a, a house or a job or whatever, none of those things, according to this account, are actually... Uh, deep enough to to satisfy that longing that that craving that desire um, you don't have to be a zen buddhist to, to just to, to to analyze the the structure of desire even even a schopenhauer quite nicely put it he's he was a pessimist he quite nicely put it either it's the case that i get what it i desire and I'm bored with it or it's the case that i don't get what i desire and i'm frustrated and unfulfilled and you know, you can think that he was just a pessimist, and indeed he was. But he might have been saying something quite insightful about what it is to be simply a desirous being to go after that which I do not have. So the idea is that whenever we try to posit or make happiness be something that is uh, an object out there, away from us, one that we have to strive for and then grab a hold of. The idea is that that is already bankrupt as, as a conception of how we can find happiness hmm. or be happy. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
Only from Rustolium. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, well, let's talk about the nature of work um, in particular, because actually, you know what, before we get to the nature of work, this is something that was on my mind. And I, as I was looking at your website, it struck me and it was almost like a sign from the universe because um, my, my friend Mike and, and I were talking about a particular area of my life that I've been frustrated with. And he said, you look at this as a problem to be solved rather than a process to be enjoyed. And he said, and that's why it's making you so miserable. Um, and I, I know you had something that uh, said something very similar. And I, I was very curious to hear about this perspective. So there, there are a variety of ways of thinking about situations in life in, in, in more neutral or less neutral terms. One way that's become really predominant in Silicon Valley and elsewhere mm-hmm. is something I've called the, fancily the, the problematization of the world. It's not that one thing or another becomes a problem. It's rather that it becomes a, a mindset or worldview. That is to say, I begin to look at my life my relationships, 
social problems, everything, potentially everything in terms of problems that need to be solved. When I was trying to research an article that I, that I was writing about it, I couldn't quite find a talk that Elon Musk, who was very good at it, gave. And it was an interesting talk because the, the interviewer would ask him a question, and he'd say, well, that's a problem, and here's how we solved it. And the interviewer would ask him a second question, and here's the problem, and here's how it can be solved. And he's, he's marvelous at it. I, I, I'm not disagreeing with his efficacy in terms of problem solving. I was just struck, as we turned to the beginning of our conversation today, by the, the, the assumption the assumptions that are construed as problems that we go on to solve. And someone might say, well, what's the problem? You know, there's a joke here. What's the, what's the problem with that? And we would get into a second order problem solution thinking if I, if I said it was a problem. But if we just look at it a bit, if we take some time with it a bit, then we can see that there is um, maybe, maybe a shortcoming or something that is un- unfulfilling in that very way of looking at the world. Mm. One of the things that's unfulfilling about it is that it doesn't seem to me, and I, I doubt it seems to most of us, that in our own experiences, most things really are solvable. I think a, a good example here would be a marriage. You know, one, one man said to me, uh, a, a, an Argentine CEO said to me recently, well, I'd like to, f- to solve my marriage. I'd like to fix my relationship. What if it's the case that relationships aren't really amenable <laughs> to, to fixing or to problem solving? What if there's something different altogether? And what goes through relationships may go for all sorts of things. That is, there are all sorts of things in life that seem to be, to use Buddhist terminology, they're impermanent. They come and go. They return. We have to think more about them. They don't really, they don't really find themselves easily grasped in terms of problems, mm-hmm. and so I think I think what your 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 buddy said is is likely to be true. If we think of things rather as pro- situations and processes that we're in, then we're much more apt to be able to to go along with them in the way that they're actually going along, mm-hmm. rather than thinking that we are going life is going to be good and great and wonderful once this final problem is solved. This returns us in a way to what you're saying about happiness. Mm. In both cases, there really isn't a sense of finality. Life happens to go on as it goes on. And the question is, are we going to be able to ride along with life as it goes? Why is it that we have a tendency, um, maybe not all humans are built like this, but I think that some of us are. It, why, do we, why do we tend to cling to things that we've lost? Like, Why is it that we have such a hard time from moving on from what we've lost? Well, I think it's going to depend on uh, what the particular person says. But um, one of the things we've noticed so far in this conversation is that we've been thinking in the last few questions about our relationship with the future. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and the idea is that life will only be good when the promise of salvation or the, the, the promise of happiness uh, is fulfilled. And the other tendency we have I'm sure, I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with meditative practice, will be with our relationship with the past. Uh, one reason I think we struggle greatly with our relationship with the past is that we thought life was better then. Something that was lost was so deeply important to us that we cling to it. I can think of 
obviously of grieving and of mourning. Those are clearly, those are clearly examples that come to mind. Yeah. But uh, I can also think of someone who is, I was thinking about someone the other day. She used to always go through memory exercises when she was uh, thinking to herself. She would commonly recall incidents or episodes from the past. And the, the reason is that she still held resentments. She still held pains. She still had anger. And the hope was that through memory, she'd be able to figure out what happened and why. So some people say that we have, you know, if we want to go a little bit into to psychology here, some people would say, furthermore, that we have emotional pain from early on in our lives, perhaps through upbringing, that has yet to be resolved or worked through, as some might say, or, or thought out with the result that we continue to relive those patterns with different people in our lives and in our own mental lives too, even when other people aren't around. So the past has a way of, as as Faulkner says, the past has a way of being present, continue to come back to us because we have yet to lay it to rest. Hmm. So how do you lay it to rest? Well, the, the, the big thing that I've, I've been doing, uh, there are two things that I do. One is to meditate, and that has a way of really quieting the mind and of allowing us to, to notice, to come to a kind of awareness in which we aren't a particular thought, or we weren't a particular identity. So um, when you meditate, the, one of the first things you begin to realize is, is something that's really quite startling for some people is that whatever their course of their thoughts is they are not any of those we, we could still need to understand who they are but certainly they can see that the thought is coming and going but they are not identical to any of those thoughts Sam Harris describes this really well in some of his guided, guided meditations so that's the first thing it allows us to let go of the past because we realize that whatever that was, whatever that person was that is not who I am now Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I do often is, is simply to to philosophize. It's uh, it's interesting to think about. Um, some people will say this is where I would probably disagree with some some uh, people who are involved in meditation. Will say, well, you can simply let go of past events by being aware of them and letting them go, um, just simply by being present. And I think that that's good in some cases. But what about the ones in which things have been really painful for you? really painful for me when when they've been really painful then i think we need to get to the bottom of them we need to come to the deepest level of understanding that we can what's amazing is that i was having this um this this conflict the other day uh, with someone and i was thinking why is it the case that this is so conflicted and I, i why am i so conflicted about it and i realized that this person reminded me of the kind of person i i used to be i used to be um, before the age of 29, I used to be pretty arrogant, pretty self-conceited. I used to be pretty self-absorbed. I used to think that my intellect made me superior to others. I thought, oh, yes, this is why, you know, after a lot of philosophizing, I thought, oh, yes, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm so conflicted about this. And once I realized that this person uh, reminded me of the kind of person I really used to be, I was able to then meditate and let go of it. Then I was able to relax. Then I was able to put it to rest. But before then, simply 
sitting and trying to have a calm mind seemed utterly impossible for me. So those are the two things I tend to do to to meditate and to to inquire in such a way as to get to the bottom of things. Right. Well, let's do this. Um, let's talk about two things that I think are, are very relevant to both the world we live in and um, you know uh, our lives. One is is work, and the second is money, which are probably kind of both you know uh, <clears throat> birds, just, you know, part of the same coin. Uh, I know you have some interesting views on money, so I want to hear about those because that was something I stumbled up on your site, and I was like, okay, this is something we have to talk about. And then I want to hear about you know sort of what all what are the implications of all of this for the future of work. Well, the, the first one, money. Uh, so I, th- I think we can say, we don't get too much into a theory of money, but we can say that money certainly is, a, is in one sense, a token of exchange. And uh, so far, so good. It's, it's a neutral term there. So when leftists think that money is evil or the root of all evil, uh, we, can, we can wonder about whether that's true. And when, uh, when people on the conservative side thinks that, think that money can be at the basis of happiness, we can wonder about whether that's true. If we just keep it as a medium of exchange, so far so good. Um, but what I, what I then notice, and this will get us into to work, is that people will often say, well, making a living is the same thing as making money. They're identical. And I've heard that from people who are entrepreneurs. I've heard that from people who are artists. I've heard that people who are very open-minded. And that's, that's my first challenge i don't i think that's the a self-evident statement that turns out to be incorrect there are ways of making a living that go beyond making money mm-hmm. so it, it includes making money but it goes beyond it i'll just give one example right so we forget that there are plenty of societies that have uh, lived off the land even in the 19th century mk anderson who's a uh, who's an anthropologist, wrote a book called Tending the Wilds, and she wrote about California, and she says, up until the 19th century, indigenous peoples there had lived, you know, to, to greater or lesser, uh, greater lesser success off the land. And there are other, other peoples who have lived off the land itself. So this is one way in which one can actually survive. I use making a living and surviving interchangeably. You can actually provide a model for survival that doesn't involve necessarily making a living. Uh, the, the, the third way is actually so the second way we're familiar with which is using the market in order to make a living money in that way the third one is the one that people also don't consider very much it's almost been lost this is the one that I have been living in which is a gift a gift economy people who live in a gift economy aren't involved in tit for tat relationships they're involved in different kinds of relationships with one another it's easy when you think about it with regard to a friend. When you when you go over to a friend's house, you might bring something to the friend, such as a bottle of wine. Now, that's a, it's a gift. It's not an exchange. It's not as if he's going to only admit you if you give him the bottle of wine. Uh, he's certainly not going to turn you out if you don't bring the bottle of wine. It's, it's a gift. And there are other sorts of gifts that we give to one another that help us to get by in the world. Friends do each other favors rather than asking for lift or or calling Uber. People uh, call over friends or babysit for their for their children when they have to go out last minute. Uh, people lend each other things without interest. Uh, this might sound this might sound a little bit hippie, to, you know, hippie, you know, a little bit you know out there for some of your listeners. But 
I, I would submit that there, this actually still goes on in our lives, and it is, in fact, to some degree scalable. So if you put those three models together, you find that you can. there are some people who live off the land, so there are eco-villages that are still being tried out today, or those living off the grid. Certainly we can utilize the market transactions in order to produce goods and to offer services. That's fine so far as that goes. So the, the third way, too, is actually be involved in various uh, thicker uh, caring relationships with the people in which we're able to not we're able to give each other things words deeds perhaps also money in a way that doesn't circulate in the way that uh, the way the market circulates mm-hmm. so that's my rather unorthodox view so remember the starting point was making a living is identical with making money and I'm simply arguing that that is and even our mutual friend Kay has said this in a recent post that that is not the, the entire story particularly as we move into the 21st century I can imagine people starting to make a living in, by utilizing these other models, living more off the land to some degree, maybe selling products or producing services or, or offering services, and being involved in forms of relationships that are not oriented toward, I give you this and therefore you get that exactly in return, or I do this and equivalent, equivalently for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're talking a little bit about artificial intelligence earlier in our conversation, which, you know, has the potential, obviously, to displace, you know, millions of jobs, possibly even billions. I mean, I think, you know, we've primarily seen technology be something that displaces blue collar labor. um, But what it seems like is coming down the pipe is is a large displacement of also white collar labor. So what does all that mean for, you know, the future of work? What is what is the definition of work going to be? Like, how is that going to change our relationship to it? Well, I. It's an excellent question. I know it's been on a lot of people's minds. And I think the first thing to say is that we certainly don't know, but I'll, I'll take a crack at it. I think that if, if we, if we, some, some say that AI is going to simply augment human powers. It's going to, and this is the kind of common story we've, we've, we've been told many times that, that machine technology will simply augment human powers, allowing us, freeing us up to do the cognitive and imaginative and creative tasks that we'd like to do otherwise. And some still say that this is going to get rid of a lot of rote tasks that that are basically forms of drudgery. But let's go with the more, more interesting situation, a more interesting scenario. Suppose it were the case that AI actually does, as you said, replace uh, lots of white-collar jobs. What then? Well, uh, some people are arguing for universal basic income. I think the jury is still out about whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. But let's suppose that that were also implemented and it were enough to meet people's basic needs, or material needs. Then I think we have um, something to grapple with, something that's not often talked about. And this is that I don't know what people would do with their leisure. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually quite scary for people. I often hear from people who are COOs or CEOs who are involved in venture capital, and they will say, actually, I'm fine during the weekdays. I'm fine when I'm, when I'm, when I'm focused on the tasks at hand and in problem, problem solving. It's on the weekends when I start to feel panic 
where I start to feel at loss. There's a, there's, a, there's a Latin word that's quite good here, acedia. I start to feel restless in my, in my spirit. I start to feel as if I don't know what to do with myself. Now, that's just a weekend, organized according to the very modern idea of a work week and a weekend. But on the supposition that AI were to come to pass and wipe out lots of white-collar jobs, and on the further supposition that UBI were to be passed, I think we have a great existential question on our hands. What would people do with their leisure? How would they, how would they actually dwell? If they couldn't identify with themselves being a certain kind of worker, that's the question I think is is very interesting to me and I'm very alive to. It's the one I'm not really hearing policy experts talk about. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, well, I, I can see what why I can't refer to you. This has been really one of those sort of thought provoking conversations that, uh, in so many ways, I feel like I'll just have to play back and reflect on. Um, because you've given us a lot to think about. So I want to finish with uh, my final question, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I, I think it has to do with, with, this is a very American answer. It's a very American answer. I think it has to do with your capacity to, to leave behind the mainstream, to, to go your own way, as Frank Sinatra says, I did it my way, to go your own way and to do something that is is unknown to you and that requires taking a genuine risk, having skin in the game and acting courageously, not knowing what's going to come out of it and being able to return to conventions in the mainstream, either uh, either way, whether you've succeeded or whether you haven't succeeded, being able to return to mainstream society and think, I have no regrets. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our conversation. Where can people learn more uh, about you and your work? They can find out more about me by visiting my website, which is andrewjtaggart.com. Or you can just Google my name and also include philosopher so that you don't confuse me with a singer. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that <laughs> yeah. when I got the Google search <laughs> as well. <Yeah. laughs> so, awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.